Welcome to the ACO Show, podcast about, well, about a lot of things. Today, it's about drug treatment in rural West Virginia by community health centers. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. What did you think of our guest, Rachel Lively? Yeah. So Rachel Lively helps run substance abuse recovery services. Her official title is Vice President of Community Health Center Operations at Valley Health, which is a large community health center in West Virginia. I was glad to talk to her. My not-so-secret agenda is to, to decrease stigma around treatment of opioids, to increase prescribers doing it. And I was happy to hear about the, the good results they've been having. What about you? First of all, I was very impressed with her. She's been at this work for seven years during one of the worst drug scourges that have ever hit the United States, working in rural West Virginia, one of the hardest hit areas. But she was all about getting the care that people need. And as she said, very individualized care um, when possible. I really appreciated hearing from her. I am just almost always impressed when we speak to somebody at a community health center. It's, it's actually just not a well-known institution in America, but they do so much amazing work. And especially in this area where it can be so hard to get treatment for substance use disorders and they're, they're out there just doing it. That's right. And as we discussed with her, that's not how most people think of community health centers. You think of you know, really basic but good primary care, maybe some pediatrics, some, some other ancillary services. But in her community, primary care requires drug treatment. The stat is that only about somewhere around one in 10 primary care providers generally prescribe treatment for, for methadone, suboxone, the other treatments for opioid dependence. So yeah, as you say, especially in a place like Appalachia, it is a key part of just general primary care. Let's talk to Rachel. And now we're joined by Rachel Lively, Vice President of Community Health Center Operations at Valley Health in West Virginia. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. For starters, why don't you tell us something about Valley Health? Where is it? What kind of patients are you seeing? How long have you been there? Yeah, absolutely. So Valley Health has been around since the 1970s. We started with three locations, trailers, actually, in a couple of different communities here. We're in the southwestern part of West Virginia. And over the last 40 plus years, we've grown to over 45 locations with 22 different service lines. And we see upwards of 100,000 patients every year. We have roughly 200 providers and 600 support staff that help carry out those services every single day, some of which are family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics, recovery services, which we'll talk a little bit more about, mental health, pharmacy, vision, and a few more. And I've been at the organization for about seven and a half years and started working specifically in our substance use treatment programs and now, as you stated, are the vice president of community health center operations. Thanks for that background, Rachel. We do want to talk to you in particular about recovery services. Just by way of background, some statistics uh, you probably know for our listeners that opioid deaths uh, in 2021 in America cracked 100,000. Just by way of comparison, motor vehicle deaths are 43,000, gun deaths 49,000. And those are things we think of as terrible epidemics. And a lot of reasons for the increase in opioid usage, we can get into that, but it's a, it's a huge problem and there's not a lot of treatment for it. Uh, it's estimated that about I think it's one-fifth of people with a substance use disorder who can actually get treatment for it. So can you tell us about what it is you're able to offer at Valley Health for your patients with substance use disorders who, who need recovery treatment? Yeah. And this has certainly evolved over time. We started offering medication-assisted treatment services, or some folks call it medication-assisted therapy, in 2009 for opioid dependence. And we were also offering it for alcohol dependence at that time. We started off pretty small, mostly with medical services, and we outsourced the therapy services to a community mental health center. 
as our program continued to grow, we started hiring therapists to provide those services in-house just to increase coordination of care. And then as evidence has grown and as the needs of our populations have grown, we've added ancillary services, peer recovery services, case management services. We collaborate a lot with other local organizations to provide necessary information and education, employment assistance, infectious disease treatment, and so forth. So we offer buprenorphine products, um, or most commonly referred to as Suboxone, as well as Naltrexone and long-acting injectable buprenorphine products. We don't currently offer methadone. There's some specific state legislation regarding the services for methadone, but we do refer to those, those services if our patients are in need of it. You mentioned medication-assisted therapy. Can you give us a basic explanation of what that is? Yeah. So our medical providers predominantly are using those medications I listed a moment ago to help control the cravings and withdrawals that patients may experience when they stop using opioids or alcohol. In addition to that, we also have patients engaged in individual therapy services as well as group therapy services. And those are set at certain intervals depending upon how long a patient's been in our program. And we utilize best practices to set up the structure of our program, but we also have specific state regulations that went into place in 2016 by one of the regulatory bodies, as well as our state Medicaid agency, which a lot of the participants in our program do have West Virginia Medicaid as their insurance. So the key to the medication assisted is that the medication, again, is assisting with those cravings and withdrawals, but there's a lot of other skills that are being developed in individual and group therapy, whether that's coping skills, talking about triggers, talking about changes someone may need to make in their life to better improve their chances of not relapsing or returning to use, whether that's changing their housing situation or working through any other side effects that have come about as a result of their addiction, whether it's issues with child protective services, family members, driver's license, those types of things. So we work through all of that within case management as well. The statistics around the benefits of medication-assisted treatment, giving medications like suboxone or buprenorphine for opioid dependence are really striking in their benefits. Reduced crime, reduced disease, reduced time in prison, higher rates of employment. And yet these are not very utilized treatments. I think it's about one in 10 primary care providers in America has ever used these. Can you speak to why that might be? I think that there is still some stigma with medication-assisted treatment specifically, even within the addiction community, folks who are in active addiction or in recovery. So we've seen historically a lot of divide between folks engaged in NA and AA and medication-assisted treatment programs with the thought that if you are on medication, you're trading one drug for the other. So that's even happened within the that community, the recovery community. And then with primary care providers or addiction psychiatry providers, I think that same notion has been there previously, maybe not as much in recent years as additional evidence is coming out about medication-assisted therapy. I think that's part of it. I also think that some folks are just uncertain about providing the service in general, not knowing if they have enough support or if they live in a state like ours that has specific regulations, not knowing if they can provide all of the ancillary services that are required to be able to offer that in our state. Rachel, you touched on an important issue there. So you work at a community health center. Program's been around since the 60s, done great work all around the country, providing access to basic primary care pediatrics, some maternity care, as you said. 
this is very different, right? This is not mm -hmm. this. What you're talking about here is not a patient population that I think people typically associate with community health centers, not a set of services that we typically think of. What challenges has that presented to you as the head of operations at a community health center? Or is this just like adding, you know, any other new service on, you get a grant from HRSA and you build out the program? It's evolved over time. In 2009, when the services first started, and then when I joined in 2016, there was a lot more stigma if we wanted to add or expand services related to substance use disorder treatment. It was definitely a process to talk through what that would look like with other providers who were co-located if we had primary care practices or pediatric practices at the same facility. And a lot of it was breaking down stigma. And part of that is that we are seeing patients every single day in our health centers for primary care or women's health or dental that have a substance use disorder. We're seeing them all the time. This is just a matter of providing the services that they need to be able to engage in recovery and ultimately lead a better quality of life. So we've had to work through that in recent years. Our community, specifically in Huntington, West Virginia, has done a really good job of breaking down stigma. So not just at our organization, but community-wide. So our providers and our staff members have been a part of that and also trying to increase collaboration to boost folks' comfort. We've also provided opportunities for providers in our system, as well as outside of our organization, to come and provide some addiction treatment services. It doesn't have to be full 40 hours or 20 hours a week, but if you have a primary care practice at another location and you want to come offer services for eight hours a week because that's what your schedule allows, that is certainly more than okay with us. And it's helped to give some exposure to those providers that they can take back to their other locations and then ultimately help spread the word about how important these services are. I'm just going to give a two-minute historical perspective on, on how we got here. When I was in psychiatry residency in the, in the late 90s, and we would have lectures on pain and opioids, my professors would directly say, patients should not have pain. You should treat with opioids at dosages however high is needed to achieve pain. If they still have pain, you should increase the dosage. And addiction is not very common. You know, I think we all know some of the books and movies that have come out about the Sacklers, Empire of Pain and all that. And of course, this was completely wrong. And when physicians started to figure this out, the reaction was, I'm out, washing mm -hmm. my hands of this, stopping the medications, and people will be okay. And of course, people were not okay. They turned to heroin. And then in the last few years, fentanyl, which is much easier to make and transport than heroin, has flooded the market. And, and that's where we are now with the state of addiction and, and deaths. It's hit some parts of the country particularly hard, one of those being Appalachia, where you, where you and your providers practice. Have you actually been able to see the effects of this in your community? Yes, definitely. I think some folks may have seen, it was on the news several years ago, that we had um, a horrible situation in Huntington where we had upwards of 20 people overdose within a four to six hour time period because of carfentanil. Um, and we've certainly seen an increase in fentanyl in our communities, both, you know, within the Huntington and Charleston areas, as well as in more rural communities. It's obviously impacted those individuals when it comes to overdoses, overdose deaths. We've seen it impact families and communities. We have a lot of grandparents raising grandchildren in our communities and then the stressors that those individuals go through trying to learn and understand what to do. We've had a lot of different research and information coming about about neonatal abstinence syndrome. We saw an uptick in that 
during some years in the past several years and developed a neonatal therapeutic unit at one of our local hospitals. And then even there was an outpatient residential unit developed called Lily's Place to transition the babies over there with their with their parents so they could continue to receive ongoing care. So it's certainly been very uh, detrimental to our communities. In the last several years, it's been very promising to see the collaborations amongst local groups, recognizing the issue and coming together to address it and not working in silos anymore, which I think was previously the case eight to 10 years ago. First of all, you guys provide a tremendous service that's desperately needed in your community. What are the challenges to meeting that need? You know, and not to get crass, but what are the financial implications for mm-hmm. your center? How is this reimbursed? I assume some of these patients are uninsured, some are on Medicaid or other commercial insurance. Uh, do the payers appropriately compensate you for the full range of services you're providing? Give us a sense of what that means for you. Yeah. So for the most part, they do. For medical services, they reimburse similar to as they would to, you know, other primary care services. Same thing with therapy services that we do have to request specific authorizations on therapy services because they are more frequent in nature than perhaps somebody who is seeing a therapist for anxiety or depression because we have that individual and group therapy structure. We are not reimbursed for our case management services, which are incredibly critical part of our program because if somebody is living in a housing situation where their roommate or their family member is actively using, yet they're trying to sustain recovery, continuing to live in that environment, it's not going to be super helpful to them. And so our case managers help those individuals. They also work on transportation, employment assistance. So currently we don't receive reimbursement on that, though our state is working through a reimbursement model for pregnant and postpartum women specifically, which we do serve within our medical medication-assisted treatment program. And then the peer recovery services, we do not receive reimbursement for that either. Additionally, several years ago, our West Virginia Medicaid agency made some changes and we no longer receive our PPS and counter rate for group therapy visits. Those switch to a fee-for-service model. And so group therapy is not as sustainable as it used to be, but we do continue to provide it. So we rely on the medical and the therapy services to help support those ancillary services that we believe are fundamental for the program. Yeah, the finances are interesting. That We we want the medical system to pay for the treatment. Uh, and if it doesn't, the cost really gets picked up by the carceral system by the prison system, that the estimate is that for every dollar spent treating opioid dependence with medication-assisted treatment and other evidence-based treatments, it saves $7 in prison costs. But these are two different systems, so it's not always obvious how to get, how to get one to pay for it. In the treatment that you all are providing and the results you're seeing, has that helped bring down some of the stigma? around treatment? You know, have you seen providers who initially were skeptical about this and, as you said, saw this as sort of swapping one addiction for another? Have you seen people come around? Oh, definitely. And I think it's really important that our providers who are working in the programs speak with our patients about sharing their stories, which we've done multiple times based upon patient comfort level, whether that is during recovery month, which we celebrate as an organization not this year, but the the year before that, we had a large event at our business center and we had numerous providers attend, different folks in the community. So that's certainly been helpful. And our providers will share those stories during section meetings about folks, you know, getting their lives back, 
really, whether it's, and those goals vary, you know, everyone's goal is going to differ when they enter into treatment and as they progress through services, whether that is paying off bills to get their driver's license back or going back to school or working through issues with CPS, those, or getting their first apartment or their first house, those goals are going to vary by the individual. And so it's incredibly important to share that. And as I mentioned earlier, when our providers have participated, even for a short time, four hours a week in the program, I've had them come to me and say, this has completely changed my perspective. Like this has been some of the most rewarding work I've done, challenging work. Sometimes the progress you expect, it can be slower than you might expect with a, you know, a sick visit or something like that. But it's, it, it can be challenging, but very rewarding, you know, and I think a lot of perseverance is required. Just wanted to give a shout out to one of our own uh, Allidade doctors, Dr. Leland Chow, who does a lot of this work. And she describes it just as you're saying, as, as the reverse country song where, you know, I got my truck back. I got my dog back. <laughs> I got my job back. I had a very simple question. You referred several times to our providers. When you say that, do you mean the community health centers providers or providers in the community that you're educating? The providers at the community health center. We have worked with other providers who are not full-time with our community health center. For example, for a while, we employed two ER physicians who had an interest in providing addiction treatment. So they worked with us eight to 16 hours a week, which was phenomenal because then they carried that knowledge and passion to the emergency room where we are seeing a lot of stigma, a lot of fatigue from responding to overdoses, and they were able to help provide education there as well. But the services predominantly at this point in time are delivered by primary care providers at Valley. So whether those are physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and then we have some psychiatrists engaged as well from a medical perspective. And then our therapists range from social workers to counselors to doctoral level psychologists. It used to be until last year, as I'm sure you know, Rachel, that you had to have a special waiver to prescribe these medications. It was always a little kooky. You know, anybody, any doctor could prescribe opioids, but very few could prescribe the treatments for it. It was hoped that if that waiver process went away, the rate of prescribing would increase. And it hasn't much other than in PAs, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. And it sounds like you also are working with those types of providers to provide these services. Yes, we are. And specifically, we haven't seen a huge increase, I would say, in our area because we still have state regulations that require each medication-assisted treatment program to be registered with the state. And then we have about a 60-page manual of rules and regulations that we have to follow. So those changes were wonderful. And the part where we see that being most useful is bridging medications. So if one of our providers sees a patient, whether it's in quick care, which is our version of urgent care or primary care services, OBGYN, and they need to get into recovery services, but they're not at the same location as the recovery program, which again has to be registered with the state, they can write a two-day prescription to get them, you know, through to get into services because those bridges can be super helpful. When we start medication earlier, those patients are more likely to follow up for their appointments. So Rachel, you've been at the center, I think you told us, for seven years. Mm -hmm. You've seen this problem evolve over time. You know, uh, Josh made reference to how different drugs have replaced each other. Give us a report card. How are things going? You guys are providing tremendous services, but are you turning the corner? Are things getting better or are you still swimming upstream? 
I think in our more, what we would consider urban areas, so Huntington and Charleston, we have fairly good access to treatment right now in terms of medication-assisted treatment for opioid dependence. And that's just been in the last several years that more individuals in the community have become engaged in that because folks have been trying to come together to boost access. I wouldn't say the same for rural communities. So we're actively working on expanding access to some of our more rural locations knowing that those programs are likely going to be much smaller, might be 15 participants, but that's 15 individuals who may not otherwise be engaged in treatment because they cannot travel an hour and a half to where our other recovery services are located. So that's been good. We are dealing with polysubstance use, so not just opioid dependence anymore. Folks who are in our program may have opioid use disorder. They also may also be using methamphetamines. We've seen a rise in that in the last several years. So we've been exploring as a program how to offer contingency management, if that's a potential, because it is more evidence-based for stimulant use disorders. So that's something that we're actively exploring. And while we've added a lot of ancillary services like case management, peer recovery services, I think the next stage is making sure our community has enough available resources to those individuals. So we have some patients who have HUD vouchers, they're ready for housing, but we don't have enough options for safe, affordable housing in our community. So it's about getting to that next stage again, because treatment is okay in our immediate area. Again, we have some work to do in the rural communities, but it's all the other services that somebody may need as they're in recovery and you know restarting their life. And I speak to doctors in the Allidade treatment network. A lot of them will say, I can't take on these patients. It's They're complicated patients. Um, my practice is not set up for it. And I don't want to minimize that some of these patients can be challenging to take care of. But my message always is you don't have to turn your practice into an MAT clinic. If you have just two or three patients who you know well, you have a good rapport with, and maybe even under your care accidentally because of pain treatment, they've become dependent on opioids. Try it out. Just help out those few. You don't have to take on any patients you don't want to in a private practice. Do you see in your community this treatment being offered by independent primary care physicians, or is it pretty much all done at a health center like your own? It varies. Before 2016, there was a lot more independent primary care practices offering, and then 2016 is when the regulations came into place in West Virginia. So exactly what you said, some of the primary care providers were stating, I can't comply with all of these regulations. It's going to be too challenging. I have to close my doors to this service. I know a, a primary care provider very close to us who probably had 125, 150 patients, and he ended up transferring majority of those patients to us because he and his, his practice did not feel like they could comply with all those rules and regulations. So I think it can be done, but it takes a lot of collaboration with other local agencies because of the specific rules and regulations that we have in place. So we are you know, constantly doing advocacy related to that to make sure that we are providing quality addiction care and treatment while not also putting up barriers to care and creating environments where providers are unable or do not want to engage because of these rules and regulations they have to comply with. But there are still certainly independent primary care practices who offer it in our community. So Rachel, you're providing a really important service to a community in need, and you've made reference to regulations and financing. What if they sent you to Charleston for a day and your governor for a day, or they send you to Washington and you're head of CMS? You know, what are your big asks? What would you change to make your life easier to provide this service in your community? I would certainly ask for the regulations to be more open to individualization for patients. It is very cut and dry. You know, it's three months of this, 
six months of this without a lot of flexibility based upon how the patient is doing or progressing or how they came into treatment with our organization, which is not what we do for many other types of chronic diseases. You know, when a patient comes in and they have diabetes or COPD, we're looking at them as an individual, individualizing their care plan. But we, with those specific regulations, we have very little flexibility. And we want to make sure we engage folks in treatment as much as possible. We have patients who are houseless. And so their treatment might look different than somebody else's treatment, not because we're offering anything less, but we might have to look at what they are able to do to keep them retained in treatment versus saying, well, sorry, you don't fit this this mold of what we can offer. We're not going to serve you. We don't want to do that. We want to keep folks engaged and reduce the likelihood that they return to use and use fentanyl or anything else. And have an overdose. So that is certainly one thing is the individualization for providers to be able to make those decisions. And then if we have regulations in place, providing, I I think our state resorted to sticks, right? If you don't comply with these regulations, this is what's going to happen. And that hasn't seemed to be super effective. So instead, how do we, if somebody's not intrinsically motivated to provide high quality addiction care and treatment, how do we create that within our system, even if it's within the, the payment system? But I think that can be a little bit challenging with addiction care and then hopefully payment for ancillary services because those are some of the most critical. Just to note, this has been interesting for me to learn about the regulations in West Virginia for people listening, thinking about doing this prescribing. It really is very different from state to state. The two states in which I have practiced, Maryland and California, have almost none of this, much easier to prescribe. So I appreciate Rachel's community health center taking on these challenges, but it's not as daunting everywhere. But just want to thank you, Rachel Lively, Vice President of Community Health Center Operations at Valley Health in in West Virginia. You guys are doing great work. Please keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. The ACO Show now has a mailbag. Submit your questions, compliments, or episode ideas to acoshow at alladay.com. This show was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Coogan, Rebecca Raymond, and Stuart Taylor. Check out more of our show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.